you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decrees before the age, ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good day, everyone. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, according uh, to a recent blog on the website Psychology Today, the average human being makes in an average day a mind-boggling number of 35,000 individual choices. That breaks down to about one choice every two seconds. Big choices and small choices. Which AFL football team should I support, for example? Should I support Essendon or should I support Geelong? If you're making that choice, please support Geelong. It will save yourself a world of pain, as I know from personal experience. Bigger choices, though. Who should you marry? Should you marry? Uh, What work should you do? Should you be a builder or an accountant? Um, Those are examples of the many choices which we each make. Choices which, the bigger they are, have larger and larger implications. The Bible tells us that the greatest choice that you or I will ever make is what we do with the person of Jesus Christ. The biggest choice with the biggest implications. 
As we come today to this wonderful letter of 1 Corinthians and we come to chapter 2, it's almost as if Paul takes us to a moment and he stands us where, in a place where the roads diverge, to the left and to the right. And he explains to us four different contrasts between the two roads that each one of us can choose in regard to the person of Jesus. We're going to look at those together now. These four contrasts are two kinds of wisdom, two keys, two kinds of people, and finally, two destinations. Well, firstly, two wisdoms at this diverging of roads. Wisdom is basically the right choices about life. And the Bible says there's two different kinds. So the first kind Paul gives us in chapter 2, verse 6. It's the wisdom of this age. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So what is the wisdom of this age? Well, maybe the wisdom of this age would be what everybody thinks. It'd be the cultural air that we breathe and the cultural water in which we swim. It would be what you think if you don't think. Well, what specifically is that wisdom of our age? It's hard to know, but maybe it would be that you or I exist in a world where our job, our role is to find our identity, to find who we really are. And once we've found that identity to express it, no one can tell us what that identity is. There's no God which gives us that identity. We discover it for ourselves. And in that process, the wisdom of the age would say there's no real ironclad truth that we all must adhere to. It's the truth that you find as you find your own identity. It's the truth that I find. Maybe that would be the wisdom of this age. But Paul says the wisdom of this age will pass away. One of the great benefits of being an art student at university, aside from having a lot more time than the serious students to uh, be able to enjoy university itself, one of the great benefits of being an art student is studying history. Um, I love studying history. It's fascinating and it's always changing. So for example, let me give you one example. Let's look at the medical history of tobacco. For many hundreds of years, tobacco was viewed as good for you in every sense. Uh, many of you would know that, but what you might not know is that tobacco and specifically tobacco enemas were considered to be the cure-all for many different ailments, including human resuscitation. So if you were swimming by the lake and you drowned and your heart stopped, um, you would be given a tobacco enema before any other attempt to resuscitate you. Now, if that means nothing to you, you can have some fun after this looking at what actually that was. Medical fact. Now, the wisdom of the 18th century when this was common seems totally laughable to us, doesn't it? We, in 2020, we've discovered real wisdom. We know how this world works. We know the big answers to life. But I'll tell you something. The next generation will laugh at us. Just as we laugh at the fashion choices of the generations before us, the next generations will laugh at this wisdom of the world, which we have apparently found because this wisdom, like human beings who create it, changes. It's always changing. <laughs> Paul says, there's another wisdom that's not changing. And he speaks about it in verse seven. He says, but we impart a secret 
and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He says it's a secret and hidden wisdom. It comes from God. It's not a human wisdom. It's divine. It's a God wisdom. It's not something that's self-evident. It's something that he's hidden and needs to be revealed. And this wisdom is unchanging. It's venerable. It, it existed before time began. What's this hidden wisdom? Well, in the New Testament, the hidden wisdom of God is quite simply the story of God's love expressed in the sending of his son Jesus to die on a cross. It is the crucifixion of Jesus, his plan of salvation through that crucifixion and how we should live in light of that. It's a mystery, not because it's, it's impossible to understand, because it, was so, because it was so totally unexpected. No one saw it coming. Verse 8 tells us that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So as Paul takes us to this diverging of the road, there is two kinds of wisdom, and there is also two keys to the two different kinds of wisdom. The first key to the road, the road of human wisdom, well, it, it's simple. You already hold it in your hand. You have the opportunity to learn yourself through school and, and through university. Use your mind, apply your intellect, and you will discover these truths about what this wisdom looks like. Discern which way the cultural wind is blowing and, and trim your sails accordingly, and you will speed forth into success. That's the wisdom of this age. But the key to the wisdom which is secret, which God gives, is very different. Verses 10 to 12 explain what this wisdom is and what this key is. Listen to this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Six times in these verses, Paul speaks of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. What, what does he mean? Well, this, the Holy Spirit is not kind of like the force in Star Wars, which is an impersonal thing. The Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God's gift to his people, doesn't just encourage us in our walk. It doesn't, he doesn't just fill us with love. He, he doesn't just give us spiritual gifts. Fundamentally, above all, the Holy Spirit is the key to which we know God to which we understand the saving mystery. The Holy Spirit is the key. Kiampa and Rosner, uh, two commentators on this letter to 1 Corinthians, say this about this verse, and it's good. They say, Paul draws a thick and heavy line between things human and divine and places the things of God squarely outside the limits of human knowing. When Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus didn't compliment him on his ingenuity, but explained, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. 
Notions that we can find God through reason or intuition are cruel, misleading. No sentence in the Bible underscores more emphatically the necessity of divine revelation. In the words of Karl Barth, God is known through God alone. God, the Holy Spirit is the key to the secret and hidden wisdom. So two wisdoms, two keys, now two kinds of person, the natural person and the spiritual person. Paul speaks of the natural person in verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is the one who lives in the spirit of this age. The person who lives without the key of the Holy Spirit. And the natural person, while they can be incredibly wise in dealing with this world, and very often more wise than the spiritual people are, and while they can be intensely spiritual in the sense of knowing that there is something beyond the physical and exploring that, in terms of the wisdom revealed by God, the secret and hidden wisdom, they're blind. They are discerned. While they can understand the mechanics of it, they cannot understand what the cross of Jesus, his death and his resurrection mean. They can't understand because they have not got the key of the Holy Spirit. But verse 15 describes the spiritual person and says, Paul says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is a completely radical claim. That a spiritual person has the mind of Christ. We know that in the beginning was the word, was, was Christ. And the world was created through Christ and for Christ. And now Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. That is astounding. You have the mind of Christ, the mind which made Einstein. Not just his mind, which made Einstein. You have that mind. And this is not somehow kind of um, intellectual or moral superiority or boasting. There's no grounds to boast here. It's not something that you did. You, you didn't win the mind of Christ by your own intellect. It was given to you by the free gift, the key of the Holy Spirit, which opened your eyes. It's God's gift alone by grace freely given to you that you have the mind of Christ. But you have the mind of Christ if you are spiritual. Well, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Does, you, does it mean that you understand all that is in the mind of Christ? Uh, Einstein again once said that he thought he understood less than 1% of everything that there was to know on this planet. Well, I can tell you that we understand infinitely less than 1% of all that is in the mind of Christ. But what you do understand about the mind of Christ is you understand the secret wisdom that in the cross of Jesus Christ, in what appeared to be foolishness, God worked a salvation plan. You understand that mind. And you also understand that being spiritual is not somehow having the ability to speak in tongues and to prophesy and to do miraculous healings. Paul's going to speak about these in 1 Corinthians. We're going to see how wonderful gifts they are to the church. But you understand that the true 
spiritual person is someone who has the key of the Holy Spirit and who understands that the Spirit and Jesus' saving work cannot be separated. They are indissoluble. The Spirit and the work of Christ go together and the spiritual person, while they will no doubt experience and use the spiritual gifts given to them by God, at their base will understand that it's the cross of Jesus and it's in light of that cross of Jesus that they will live with humility and holiness before God. Now, finally, again, as we stand at that divergence of road, two destinations. First, the destination of the natural person. They will pass away. The mystery of God's wisdom is the saving power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only lifeboat as this Titanic sinks. It's the only rock that will stand against the the flood. It's the only vaccine which can cure the terminal illness that we have. It's the saving work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we do not have this saving work, we do not have salvation. And this road, which is broad because many travel on it, it's a road that Jesus says leads to destruction. In the end, if the natural man, the natural person will refuse to accept the spiritual things, they will end apart from God now and for all eternity. It's a destination of that road. But now the destination of the spiritual person on the narrow road. Paul has already outlined what that destination is in chapter 1, verse 21. He said this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The destination of this road is salvation. But salvation for what? Uh, It's a valid question. Uh, For example, one of my favorite books is a book called Unbroken. It's a story of Louis Zamperini. Uh, True story. Uh, Louis was shot down in World War II and in the Pacific Ocean found himself adrift on on a raft with only a little bit of water and food for 47 terrible days. And finally, near the very end of his rope, he looked up to see the ship that would save him. But the ship that saved him turned out to be a Japanese naval vessel. And he spent the next three years in horrific conditions in a prisoner of war camp in Japan. Hardly a salvation to look forward to. Is that what the Christian salvation is? Something that, well, I suppose it's good, but it's not really to look forward to. No, Paul in, in these verses gives us, in this passage, gives us two of the most wonderful passages on what salvation looks like. The first one is in a single verse. Listen to verse seven. Listen again. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The end of salvation, the single end of salvation, which Paul speaks of is our glory. Glory in scripture means heaviness. It means weightiness. It's usually referred to to describe the importance and the, the weight of God almighty. 
It can also be used to express high renown or honour or magnificence or great beauty. And of course, to take pride or, or pleasure in something is glory. That's what God has for us. Glory, glory, high renown or honor for his people, magnificence and great beauty for his people. And above all, that we would take pleasure in God and God would take pleasure in us. The Bible says that's what lies ahead. It's glory. And just in case you go, yeah, Andrew, but I'm still not convinced. This glory, is it good? Yes, it's good. Paul in verse nine, this is what he says. Listen to this. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God has prepared glory for those who love him, which is unimaginable. I think we often, as Christians, do God a really big disservice. We go through the book of Revelation and, for example, we hear that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more sea. And we love to surf, so we think, ah, oh, okay. We read in the new heavens and the new earth that there will be no more marriage and we think, oh, that means no more sex and romance. Yeah. And we think and we read that we will praise God continually in his presence and we think, yeah, one just long, boring church service. Yeah. As if we really think, as if we really think that the God who made us, that a God who made this world of wonder and delight, broken though it is and passing though it is, that the God who made all this and promises that we will have glory that no eye has seen or ear has heard or, or heart has imagined, do you really think that God is going to somehow get us into his presence and we're going to go, oh, the glory is just not what I hope for? No. This is the God who promises salvation and glory for his people, for those who love him. All right, two kinds of wisdom, two keys to that wisdom. Two different kinds of people, two destinations. Finally now, two brief applications. This text, firstly, confronts us again with the reality that only God can save people. I've made much today of the fact that, that we stand at a crossroads. We stand at a diverging of the roads I made much of the fact that we have a genuine, real choice, which has genuine and real implications. But it's also true that no one can educate themselves into the path that leads to God's presence. No one can save themselves. No one can understand the wisdom of God unless God gives them the key. And that is actually quite encouraging to us. This week, I had a conversation with a woman in our church and she was depressed and upset that her children and her grandchildren refused to consider the things of God. She told me that one of her grandchildren had written her a letter and said, Nana, please stop talking about God. I'm sure there's loved ones in your life who are like that. And when we have those people in our lives that we love and that we long to see, encounter the, the beauty of Jesus, his grace, we can think, well, it's because I haven't explained them to them properly. 
If I just had the answers to all of their questions, then, then they'd believe. If I could just live a, a better life or I could be more bold, then, then they, they would believe. But the truth of this passage is that, no, they wouldn't. This is God's work. And yes, we are called to share in love and graciousness. Yes, we are called to speak boldly of the truth of Jesus, but it doesn't depend on us. That's freeing. That's liberating. And the Bible tells us you do that, but you pray because only God can shed his light into a human heart. Because if you're going to be saved, we need to be born again of the spirit of God. And only God can do that. But secondly, let's grasp a very important fact here, whether we are Christians or whether we are not yet Christians. It's an implication of the fact that there are two very different kinds of wisdom. Wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God. I think it's true that we as Christians, we're, like everyone else, we, we want to be liked. We would love the world to love us as we go down our, our road and they go down theirs. And it's easy for me as a student of history to look back on previous periods and go, wow, it's like a golden age. The church was highly respected. Being a minister was an honorable profession. Everyone seemed to be in church and to think wistfully of those days. But I suspect that those days never really existed. I'll tell you why. Because the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God are always opposed to one another. Now, it's true, world leaders may co-opt the people of God for their purposes and their faith. And it's true that the world loves someone who is a Christian um, and has a form of Christianity which is without zeal and which is out power, which is at any hard edges and which ends up actually looking very similar to the spirit of the age in which Christians live. The world loves that. Maybe you can think, or I can think of many churches and Christians in our world today who've ended up looking exactly like the spirit of the age in which they live. But if you are born again, if the spirit of God lives in you, and if you put all your trust on the secret wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Jesus, then no matter how nice you are, and no matter how kind you are, and no matter how good the deeds are that you do, the world will not love you because you will shine the light of Christ on the difference between the roads and they will not love you. The reality is that if you will have the secret wisdom of God and if you are born again, then you must wear the uniform of Christ. What is that uniform? Well, listen, chapter 118. For the word of the cross it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Hear that? The uniform of the Christian is foolishness. It's as if you put on your, your clown suit and you go to work. It's as if you put on your clown suit, your uniform is one which seems to be foolishness. And it's always been like this. I said, I like history. I love archaeology. Not so long ago, archaeologists were excavating a, a barracks in Rome. It was a soldier's barracks from around 200 AD. And as they were excavating, they found some very interesting graffiti. They found a very crude image. And on that image, there was a man hanging on the cross. 
And the man's head was that of an ass. It was that of a donkey. And worshipping this donkey on a cross was a soldier. And the graffiti scrawled across it in Greek said, Alexa Manos worships his God. Foolishness. And Alexa Manos, that soldier long ago, knows what we must know as Christians today. And those who are considering becoming Christians is that the folly of the cross does not make people always love you. In fact, it's an offense. And for many millions of Christians in the many millions of people in the world today, and people who become Christians, for many millions of these, this is not just something laughable, it is abhorrent that you could put your faith in a crucified man. And for you to do this will mean death. I'm not exaggerating. Tens of thousands of people each year die for putting their faith in this resurrected, crucified Christ. And for many others of us, while that may not be our experience, if you put on the uniform of the, and become a fool for Christ, you'll count the cost. It may be that your university lecturer, who was really impressed by your intellect previously, now thinks less of you because you, you hold to an archaic, outdated worldview. Might mean that your friends at work or your mates at school stop asking you to go out with them and spend time with them because you no longer get plastered as you once did and as they continue to. Maybe that your family who are once so proud of you, now consider the choices that you've made to be disappointing. There's no way of sugarcoating this. If you want to be popular, if you want the world to love you, if you want to go with the wind at your back, well, then you choose that broad road. But if you want the wisdom of God, if you want to experience what it is to be born again, then you will go with the wind in your face. You'll be considered a fool. You need to be prepared to lose all that you have but then you're going to lose it anyway because this world and its wisdom is passing. I love the, the true story of a man called Jim Elliott, a young man with everything before him who made the decision to leave it all and to go to the jungles of South America to tell people about God's secret wisdom revealed in the cross of Jesus. He was laughed at as a fool and indeed, he lost his life in those same jungles. But before he went, he, he said some words which, which ring so true. He said this, He is no fool who gives all that he cannot keep for all that he cannot lose. Do you understand what it is to be a fool for Christ? Do you understand what it is to choose the road which he's placed before you, to respond to God's hidden wisdom, to become a spiritual person, to be born again and to be destined for glory? It is also a road of suffering and a road of opposition. For some of us who are Christians, it's time to man up. It's time to live up to what we believe. It's time to put on our uniforms properly, 
to stop beating about around the bush, to stop uh, distracting questions, to stop moving away from the centrality of our faith in a crucified man. For some of us, it's time to stand up and be counted. But for some of us who are not yet Christians, for you, you, you stand at the bigger crossroads. The roads are before you. And perhaps today and over these past weeks, you have, have wanted to choose. You know that this road, where it leads, you've seen enough of it to realize it, and you've encountered something of the wisdom of God revealed in the cross. And if you have, that means the Holy Spirit may well be stirring in your heart. That this opportunity that you have now is, is not one that is, is, is small. This is massive in the scale of your life and for all of eternity. You have the choice before you. And I want to plead with you. Every choice that you make has implications. This choice, it has the greatest implication of all. And I would urge you to respond to the Lord Jesus, not, not in, the, in a moment, but in the reality that you choose to go with the wind in your face, but you choose because you want the glory of salvation that he promises those who love him. And if that's you, you can respond depending on the platform on which you're looking. If you're church online, you can click raise a hand. And if you click raise a hand, someone will be there online. They would love to pray with you or maybe answer some of the questions that you have. If you're on the other platforms of Facebook or YouTube, you can write in the comments below. You can just write, yes, yes, I want to respond. And in that moment and after writing that, then people will come to you and they'll offer to pray with you online. But can I please urge you, as you stand at the crossroads and as you look at the two different roads and the four different contrasts, it's my prayer that you would turn away from the wide and broad road which leads to destruction. You would go on the narrow road that leads to life. The narrow road which centers on a man hanging on a cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that the gospel would not be just words on our lips, that we would truly be born again to the depths of our being and we would understand the hidden mystery of God by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that if we're Christians now, that you would make us stand up properly and be counted. Help us put on the uniforms which you call us to, to suffer with you here that we might be glorified with you later. And Father, we pray for those that we trust today are coming to put their faith and their trust in the crucified Saviour who died and rose again and is alive and is coming back. We pray, Lord, that as they set their faces to the road in which they all travel, that you would lead them, guide them, that you, oh God, would send them your Holy Spirit and take them to glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.